Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Sentimental in the City, a mini-series where we talk about each season of Sex and City for the great American novel, It Truly Is. My name is Caroline Dunhu, and I'm the new Yankee. Joining me is a woman who wants to make sure you're moving to Paris for you, Dolly Alderton. Hello. What a long, old series this is. If we're talking about these uh, you know, TV series for the great American novels that they truly are, um, the like season one felt like a very elegant novella put out by a small press. Mm. And season two feels like a long, like a Jonathan Franzen's, slash Jackie Collins a big tomb you know it is and it's so it's 18 episodes long and within that series I feel like it's a trilogy series really there are three there are three part there are three acts to this series and they all hinge on fucking big as everything does as everything fucking does it's so amazing just how much of the drama of this novel uh, <laughs> uh, hinges on the least fascinating romantic lead in history. I know. He's just like... This season This season is depressing. This season is depressing. <laughs> I felt really depressed watching it, I have to say. Didn't you? Like watching it now with 32-year-old eyes, I was just like... Yeah. Like the whole dramatic tension being the fact that this man can't commit and, and the things that we celebrate and the things that mark the passing of time are these moments of you know non-committal that she sees as committal and yeah I found it I found it like really torturous and tiring to watch actually that that storyline it's funny because like individually the episodes are really entertaining like I think the joke writing is on point I think it's got that perfect mix of like you know, sort of farce and like, you know, really outsized, like silly behavior and great joke writing and great characterization. But if you take the arc of like just that relationship, it's like, oh God, it's an onslaught. <laughs> you know, it's terrible. Mm. And also, I think you can just really feel the pain and the fatigue of that character, of Carrie, that she, all she wants. It feels like she's just constantly begging and bargaining with him for something that she shouldn't have to beg or bargain for at every corner. Like it does, it's so relentless. And it's like, yeah, anyone, I think I found it like enigmatic and exciting when I was younger because the idea of a man who couldn't commit, I think was just like so entrenched in my idea of what like an exciting, sophisticated, older man, jaded man is. And now I'm just like, once you've been through it, you don't like seeing it on screen. It's like, fucking hell. Completely. And I I, I do, it makes me wonder whether the show was so watched by women who were like preparing for adulthood more than, I mean, obviously adult women watched it too, Mm. but having, you know, 
having so many friends go through the cliche of the commitment phobe man. It is sort of like less. And do you know what as well? It does definitely, because I was so porous and I was so obsessed with this being the template for older urban femininity, it definitely seeped in because I remember there was my boyfriend at age 17. I was on and off. Well, not really on and off. We were still sleeping together up until I was 25. And I remember talking about him when I was 19 to Sophie Wilkinson, just being like, oh, you know, the problem is he just can't commit and whatever. And she just completely deadpan was like, if you start thinking that this man is your Mr. Big, you are in (laughs) such a long haul of fucking pain. And I remember being so embarrassed that she had obviously seen through me so clearly. And I was. That's ha- that happened to me so many times in my youth. And I do think that it is the thing of like so many women who've, who've watched Sex and City to prepare for adulthood and then they end up aping the behaviours on their sort of like... Th- yeah. They do think that there's like, you know, 22-year-old they're going out with is their sort of like version of Mr. Big. And they end up giving this sort of incredible <laughs> amount of leeway to these just idiots who can't even like change their sheets. And it's just, yeah. it's so depressing. <laughs> it's so depressing. Um, but can you remind us just exactly what this show yes. is before we do anything else? Remind us why we're here. Yes. This is a psychoanalysis of all our dysfunctional behaviours with men in adult life. Um, no, this is not an episode by episode analysis. If you are looking for an episode by episode analysis, Juno Dawson hosts a brilliant podcast called So I Got to Thinking, which we recommend you listening to. This is not a judgment or a breakdown of the more problematic elements of the show, although we will talk about them if they come up. And boy, do they come up in series two. (laughs) This is not a place where we will roll our eyes about things that people have already rolled their eyes about before. Yes, we know. Carrie's annoying. Please listen to episode one. She's also (laughs) our homegirl. This is not going to be jam-packed with trivia, but if you are interested, we recommend Sex and the City and Us, an incredibly geeky and gorgeous book by Jennifer Keishan Armstrong. We are interested in stepping back and looking at each season as an individual piece of work and look at the themes, character journeys and lasting messages of it. The clue is in the title. We don't know the most about Sex and the City, but we feel the most about Sex and the City. We feel the most. We are sentimental. about sex in the city we feel too much about sex in the city it's so embarrassing i was listening back when i was editing episode one and i was like are we going to get absolutely caned for this (laughs) is this just so sincere that we'll have to like end our lives (laughs) i mean possibly Possibly. only time will tell i mean it this is this is how impactful this show is Caroline texted me earlier saying, I love the scene where Carrie throws a McDonald's in Big's apartment when he says he's moving to Paris. And I said, I always get sad because a fillet of fish, I think, is basically the most perfect thing that you can ever put in your mouth. And I always get sad in that scene that there is a wasted fillet of fish. I then started Googling sex in the city fillet of fish to see if there are any long reads about that specific moment. Because I was so concerned about whether it was a prop fillet of fish, how many fillet of fish they went through. Then you really wanted like an oral history of the fillet of fish scene as if it were like, 
Kirsty Johnson falling out of that window in season six as if it, it really deserves that much attention. <laughs> I do love that scene though. Where do we open with this whole season? We open with the heartbroken Carrie Bradshaw, who is a character I enjoy very much. I I find her like her early breakup personality, because there are two breakups within the series, as being the exact kind of breakup lady I love to take to lunch. You know, that sort of like, she's kind of listless. Caroline, if you want to talk about me, you can, <laughs> you can just say me. <laughs> If you want to just describe me heartbroken, that's I don't mind. I'm that's describing fine. our friend Carrie. She has absolutely no uh, parallels to anyone I might know in real life, former dating columnist or not. But I like how <laughs> she goes from being sort of listless and languorous and sort of like, I don't want to go out, to like suddenly being very manic, getting drunk at a baseball game and just like running up to like a fucking gorgeous baseball player and like asking him out and and, like just sunglasses Mm. on big fur coat I'm like yeah you fucking hot sad bitch I love this you said the thing you said that I think is so true about this series is that she she has the vibe of a woman who is mildly hungover at all times yes for the first like four episodes yes yeah it's like rash decisions massive drama always horny it's yeah. so the first three months after heartbreak. Always looking for a bender and then lying in bed crying hungover. So we begin with our hungover Carrie. Here's the arc of the season, really. We begin with hungover Carrie. She's sort of got the wavy hair. She's got the occasional like plait in it. It's kind of blonder than we've seen, but it's still kind of hanging low. It feels like dry shampoo hair, but like good dry shampoo hair. Totally. Then we, when she gets back with Big, we move to sort of like flat iron, very blonde hair, heavy fringe. Yeah, it's like super, it's super waspy. It's super like Park Avenue. She's trying to be the woman who he ends up marrying. Yes, completely. And like, it's it's, it's obviously, it's this thing as well, of just about sort of control, right? Just like, you know, yeah. having having this wild hair, like getting up early every morning to blow dry it, which I think is a reference that she makes at some point in the series. And just sort of trying to sort of file down your kind of idiosyncrasies that make her such an unmanageable person to be with. Because, like, he's not yeah. great. But she, to quote our friend Ella Risbridger, will not leave the poor man alone. Like, she just can't <laughs> help how crazy she has become and he has made her. And then yeah. once he leaves her again, or once she leaves him again, because she does break up with him twice. Both times it's her decision. Um, and then the hair goes back to being wild again. And then it brings us right to that finale. The finale heard by 17-year-old girls around the world where yeah. she talks about her hair versus Natasha's hair and how she has curly hair. And then she has that big yeah. toss of her head. The curls go out. She looks at the horse, she says. <laughs> what does she say no, again, Dolly? Can it. you bear it? Can you read? Can you boot up MSN from when you were 17 and read it in your quote? <laughs> Oh my god, so many girls had this as their MSN. No, I think because I was like, one of them. Maybe maybe some women aren't meant to be tamed. Maybe they are meant to run free <laughs> until they find someone just as wild to run with. Now let me tell you, Caroline, I seized onto this, because this was the first series of Sex and City I ever mm-hmm. watched after my GCSEs. 
I seized onto this as a 15-year-old, this metaphor and that final episode as basically the reason why no one wanted to go out with me (laughs) because they were not wild enough (laughs) to run free with me. I love how you're saying like seized past tense as if if this isn't like secretly still part of your brand. (laughs) Everything I know about love. Oh, it was friendship. No, it's totally mortifying. It's totally mortifying. And and yeah, that that idea of of the curly hair and do you know it does actually really tie together a lot of that kind of casting of Carrie because in that dorky book that we love, mm-hmm. Darren Starr when he was writing Carrie wrote it for Sarah Jessica Parker. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why he loved her as the lead for this is that she has this like gorgeous traditional bombshell body but she had a slightly quirkier face Mm. and he referenced Barbara Streisand so there there definitely was meant to be some sort of parallel between those roles that Barbara Streisand had in the way we were but also in Funny Girl as well that it's the Barbara Streisand love stories that everyone loves is basically about a woman who's adorable and lovable but kind of wild and unmanageable yes and I, I come of course and one of the the big sort of finale that we just mentioned references heavily the way we were which is obviously the big yeah. Barbara Streisand thing wow I hadn't even put that together the, the Barbara Streisand thorough line of Sex in the City yeah we'll be keeping an eye out yeah I like that a lot so those early episodes going back to them something that I wanted to talk to you about is you know in episode one with the new Yankee mm-hmm where she's getting over big. I cannot believe that the first line uh, of dialogue in episode one is Miranda barging into Carrie's apartment saying, come on, Anne Frank, get your coat. Oh my God. We're going out. I was, I've been sweating to talk to you about this as well because obviously, you know, Sex and the City is basically built on women and metaphors. And the the metaphor she goes into, she's like looking out her window, she's having a fag and she's like, oh, you know, after a breakup, New York becomes like a war zone and there are places you can't go and you're going to afraid you're going to run into him because you're going to step on a landmine and you're like, okay, princess, die. Okay. And then, (laughs) and then Miranda just barges in and all subtlety just goes out the window and she goes, come on, Anne Frank. It's insane. But also how friends talk to each other, you know? (laughs) Totally, totally. And also, like, everyone knows that feeling of when you've been in a certain period of wallowing with heartbreak where someone you love says to you, you come on now, you've got to to move on like this. You've got to snap out of it. Like, most people I know, you don't get there on your own. It is the job of a best mate to take you there. Yeah, the gentle... And then what I think is interesting is, in that episode, I think it's episode one or maybe it's episode two. No, it's definitely episode one. Miranda, her story for that episode is that she's kind of like, she opens with that line and she's like, fucking get over it. Go out, live your life. She then, they go to the baseball game and all, you know, the girls are being silly and smoking and drinking and talking about men. And she's like, can we focus on the game? She then goes out for brunch with them and they're talking about men again. They're talking about big, um, is Charlotte talking about balls? Someone's talking about balls. Yes, I'm um, Charlotte's boyfriend can't stop touching his balls. That's it. 
And then she says, oh, look at my new Palm Pilot. <laughs> oh, my God. But what she says is, I wrote it down because it made me laugh so much. She says, everybody has got to look at my new Palm Pilot. <laughs> it's the most turn of the century I know. line of dialogue. I but it. I was wondering, and then and then Samantha de, uh, Miranda delivers this speech where she says, all we do is talk about big or balls, what happened? And it's actually like very, it's not typical of Sex in the City for characters to like make speeches like this. And she mm. makes this, she like puts her, what's the phrase? I was about to say, put her knickers on the flag, puts her colours on the mast. What's the <laughs> yes. thing? I think, she, I think she nails her colours to the mask. There we go. Yes. Nick is on the, on the flagpole. <laughs> and she, she says, what happened to us? We have such interesting lives. What happened that means that we are so defined by men? Why don't we talk about what we think about, what we care about, uh, what we feel? And then like she kind of drops off for the rest of the episode and she needs like a bit of a break from the girls. I wonder if that... Mm was the writers addressing criticism of series one. Oh, I love how we have the same brain. <laughs> because that's exactly what I thought I was thinking yeah. as well. That's exactly what it feels like. Because, so she has this big rant about like, you know, were these interesting successful women, why aren't we doing this? And then there's this pause while everyone sort of looks at each other and they're like, oh, we don't know what to talk about. And then someone launches back into the exact same conversation and then Miranda takes off. Yeah. And it feels like that moment in particular feels very like almost the writer is saying to the critics or the audience or the feedback they've gotten that this is like a completely sort of male obsessed show. It rarely passes the Bechdel test, you know, and it's them saying like, well, what do you want? Like, yeah. if we don't have this, we don't have drama. Like, would you rather they talked about Palm Pilots? Would you rather they talked about the bank? You know, and mm. it's, it, it kind of, I really like that because it really annoys me when people are like kind of go on about the sort of, uh, how realistic the behavior of TV or film characters are. And I always want to shake them and be like, well, do you just want no drama and no stakes? Would you just like people yeah. to behave properly? Yeah, um, I kind of, so I kind of love yeah. that. Me too. And also I think it is interesting because like I do understand the criticism of we want to see women's personalities and thoughts and relationships and achievements outside of um, romance. But, and I do understand that it's much more gendered and this seems to be the the funnel for narrative for for most female led stories and it's not for men but you know relationships are the thing that makes a life they are the most important thing in most people's lives they are the most fascinating things in most people's lives and then it's mm. not just about relationships with men it's about their relationships with each other and their relationships with self i suppose so it's difficult, isn't it? Because it's like, I do take that point that perhaps it is retrograde, but then equally, are we just saying it's retrograde because it's women and we denigrate women's interests? Like, because their relationships being spoken about by women, they're, it's it's therefore like a thoughtless show. And actually, yeah. maybe it's just that, you know, I've definitely learned this in my, you know, small amount of experience of working in TV 
love is the thing. Love is the interesting thing. Relationships are the interesting yeah. thing. Like this is obviously a poor comparison, but when I worked on Raven Chelsea, I was always pushing so hard for career stories. It's all I wanted. Every episode, I'd be like, let's follow this career story. We can't have just another episode dominated by whatever relationships are going on. We'd shoot it. One scene would get in, all of it would end up on the cutting room floor because it's not wow. interesting. It's not interesting. Yeah. Love is the thing that yeah. people are drawn to. Like that's the thing we're drawn to. So I I get why that like you can dedicate in this case, 18 episodes to one year of these people's relationships. But I also think that like on top of that, like if we even if we think about the sort of the great sort of narratives that like people are still studying in university today, like your Jane Austen's or whatever, like those are about women and relationships and marriage and who gets yeah. to get married and who doesn't get to get married and all of the attendant things. And like, it's not that, like the the misreading of something like Pride and Prejudice is that it's about like, oh, Elizabeth and Darcy. It's not about Elizabeth and Darcy. It's about the society that makes this world so incredibly unequal for, yeah. for, for you know, first of all, for these girls who have to get married or else they're going to be tur- turfed out into the street. So they're examining this entire society through the lens of human relationships. For me, I think it's just a filter. And if we take like, if we take the Jane Austen quandary of like, who gets to get married and how and why, and what does that do to poverty? What does that do to society? What does that do for the rights of women generally? Um, what does that do, even like politically speaking, because there's like a war happening in Pride and Prejudice, right? Which is why the male characters disappear for long periods of time. And so the the marriage plots are just sort of like stagings for those huge social and political issues. Whereas, And if you put it on Sex and the City, what it comes down to is this sort of like fundamental inequality, mm. which is like, and it's the same as the Bennett sisters all over again. Like the four of them might as well be the Bennett sisters, which is like, we are women in our 30s. We are, you know, it's implicit that we are reproductively coming up to sort of a more challenging time. The sort of, exchange of sexual capital has changed and we've been too busy to realise and now we all have to like find our Mr. Bennett's and Mr. Darcy's you know I mean I think we should do a PhD in Sex and the City I really do (laughs) I I think this is it (laughs) so embarrassing (laughs) we're so embarrassing my first favourite character of this season like just my first favorite person who just kind of comes in and I know you know immediately you're never going to meet them again is Susan Sharon I love Susan Sharon you know Susan Sharon does come back in series four does she she comes back for this one hot moment where Aiden and Carrie have just got engaged and that she's wearing her engagement ring around her necklace (gasps) oh is that Susan Sharon that's Susan Sharon (laughs) I think it, I think Susan Sharon is such a wasted char- character opportunity because there are so many fucking random friends of Carrie's, mainly mm. men, that I just do not believe that they would be friends. I don't understand where they met. I have never seen a more realistic friendship between a journalist and a sort of loud mouth brand person. What is she? Like a yes. PR. I've never... Yes, I've in Kashmir. In Kashmir. <laughs> I have never, like, I actually think the Susan Sharon, Carrie Bradshaw friendship is more realistic than any of the friendships between the four girls. 
You're so right. It's so, I'm so glad that we feel the same way about this because I want to like, for anyone who doesn't remember, Susan Sharon, I think she's season one, episode two, season two, episode two. Um, she's the woman who has a very mean husband and um, it's the episode where it's like Carrie's birthday and she has that thing that you do with your friend who isn't your mainstream friend, who's kind of like your person you get lunch with three times a year. And they go out for dinner and she, it, it seems like it's very jolly and, and like Susan Sharon, she's kind of a few years older. She's a little bit, she's got one of those, what me and Dolly often call like a press trip face. Yeah. Just kind of sort of, Big rubbery, so many expressions happening yeah. at you at once. She's the absolute like. Sorry, this is very like we're journalists. <laughs> sort of this is a very we're journalists character, but it is so real to me. This person who you meet on a press trip, and on the thing about press trips is that you're on a holiday with four people who you've never met and will probably never meet again. But occasionally, you you get drunk with some woman who you wouldn't be friends with otherwise, and for some reason, she seems to stick around in your life. And that dynamic is so alive when you see them talking to each other. And she goes back to her apartment and she talks about like, oh, she has one of those apartments where I always feel like I'm a messy child when I'm in it. And then she gives her like a cat cashmere scarf that retails at Bloomingdale's for like $900 and kind of Carrie sort of coyly asks her whether she can exchange it because she needs the money and then Susan Sharon's husband comes out and starts screaming at them because he needs to be up early in the morning and tells basically Carrie to fuck off and I was like oh I just I just believe it do you know why else I believe it because Susan Sharon as you said she's a little bit older than Carrie Susan Sharon is so a type of media woman that you meet in London she's probably now in her 50s who mm. like has never made a huge amount of money is very respected in her field but bought a like massive house in the 90 in the early 90s yeah. in like shepherd's bush like somewhere quite random but it's got six floors <laughs> yes she's had soho house membership since 1992 she's her and carrie as you said it's like they probably don't know each other's friends that well. They probably don't know anything about each other's families, but they see each other at events and they have to work together four times a year. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, it's such, I get so much out of it, despite the fact it's like such a small appearance. And it's this thing of like, you kind of, when you're in those kind of relationships, you both overestimate and underestimate what you mean to one another. Because it's like, <laughs> Susan Sharon sort of asks her like after her husband makes this big scene she calls the next day and she's like I'm so embarrassed and and she's like you know I should leave him shouldn't I I should leave him and Carrie's a bit like yeah <laughs> I don't know if you want to leave him then leave him and then Susan Sharon leaves him and then you kind of get this sense with the rest of the episode that it's like oh like Carrie is like her only single friend and she's kind of yeah. glomming on to her and Carrie's having this whole thing the whole time and um, of like, oh, you know, you're really, it's really not very good out here. It not, it's like, if single life isn't good for me, a hot sex columnist who's 32, it's not going to be good for you. Like someone who's been married for like 10 years and is, you know, probably in their forties. And she's a bit, she's very protective of her. And then she, she has mm. a horrible interaction at her birthday party. And it's like, I just really feel for her. I've just thought of another <laughs> thesis for the Susan Sharon friendship with Carrie. Oh, go on. I find it interesting that through Carrie's eyes, when when she sees uh, Susan, she's very like, 
oh god she's a bit loud and she's a bit much and she's like smoking my fag and she's a bit unmanageable as a partner I wonder if Carrie sees herself reflected and that's what she finds so difficult oh yes and she's like sort of like that thing where you're vaguely embarrassed by your friend and you don't want to take them places but you have to yeah oh I think Carrie sees herself, as we see Carrie reflected when we look at her, I think that Susan Sharon is that for Carrie Bradshaw. Reflections on reflections. Um, (laughs) That's like the episode as well where she like invites him to her birthday. And it's that thing Uh, where... Yeah, this is the beginning of what we will keep returning to until the end of this series, which is... Big and Carrie's very fake friendship. <laughs> and, it's, and it happens several times throughout the whole show's run of them being friends. And it's like, it's this very triggering thing. And I think everyone who's had more than one relationship in their life knows this dynamic so well, where you try and be friends with someone that you used to go out with. And for some reason, all of your interactions take on the kind of cadence and patter of like two people in a film noir. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And everything's like, here's looking at you, kid. And you're like, oh, you always did like looking at me. He's like, well, it isn't so much looking as you as missing you. (laughs) It's like these like nonsensical (laughs) mental dialogue that people like don't have in real life. And we've all done it. (laughs) We've all done it. Well, you never did have the guts to be with a woman like me. No, I've not said that exactly, but I've definitely, I've definitely said, God. I've definitely sat in a Camden pub and said something along those lines. And as we have said before, Carrie does not have male friends. She doesn't <laughs> like men. She, she likes she men when like- she's fucking them and flirting with them. She does not like their company. She finds them dumb and boring. <laughs> and maybe she's right. And that's really, that's the problem. Because like this, it comes back to a couple of times in the season. Um, the first time in the freak show. And then again with the episode where Miranda's interior decorator gets engaged to her friend. Oh, yeah which yeah. is a great episode, The Chicken Dance, um, where a couple of times the girls sort of pause, particularly Miranda and Charlotte, and they're like, what's wrong with us? Mm. And it's this kind of intangible thing of being like, okay, all these men that we're going out with are freaks or weirdos or they're like liars or they're married or they're this or they're that. And they're so like, God, like they're really coming to this like conclusion very quickly that like there are no okay men Mm. and then that obviously brings them back to the conclusion of like well what's wrong with us and Miranda at one point says oh we're just choosy but actually as a viewer because you're you've at this point you've gone through 20 episodes with these people you're like well what is it and you realize that like and particularly that episode of the chicken dance when uh, Miranda her friend from London is coming to stay in her apartment they've had some flirty emails they're gonna she definitely thinks they're gonna bone he says he's ready to meet someone. She thinks that all the sort of like bowling pins have been lined up for her. And then when they're having, when when it kind of zooms into the, them in the apartment having a glass of wine, 
she's so like wooden and guarded and like she yeah. has her little jokes but she doesn't yeah. really have any warmth about her no. and then the interior designer calls in because she's dropping off an end table and the interior designer is immediately open she's immediately sunny you can t- you can it's like it's it's a mystery to Miranda why he's fallen in love with her but it's not a mystery to us you're so right you're so right and it is it is definitely a theme of um <laughs> a this beloved series. theme because um, it's this, it's sort of crystallised. It's really spelt out in that episode when Carrie uh, goes to therapy, when she says, "Oh, you know, I, f- I find it very difficult to be, you know, uh, to be satisfied by a boyfriend like a man. A man can't really give me what I want, mm. you know, out- outsourcing the blame." And and then the therapist says, "Well, the thing they have in common is you," and it's true. It, it, it's like. It does feel like this is kind of the dark side of the moon, this series, in terms of like, is it just these men or is it is it something that these women are doing or choosing or not choosing? Like, do these women actually really want to be in relationships? And it's like, I don't know if I've told you the story before of when I was doing my, when I was writing my dating column and my friend Sarah went round um, for lunch at her godfather's house and they, she, she, Sarah was about to get married and they were talking about, you know, how difficult it is to meet people now and whatever. And he said, there is this lovely girl at the back of the Sunday Times and she <laughs> cannot get a boyfriend. Every week she goes out and she tries. She seems to be a lovely girl, but she cannot get anyone to go out with her. I mean, what is going on with this girl? Something must be wrong with her. <laughs> Oh my god! But no, you just you're you're totally right that it feels like it's like a thing that is just like creeping underneath the stories. This yeah. series, yeah, even to the point when it's like when Carrie says to Big, "Why, why her? Why did you not want to marry me?" What like it's like yeah. this? Yeah, it's so sinister. This feeling of like maybe it isn't them. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's not the men. And the thing, it's, it's quite obvious. I mean, let's exclude Samantha because she doesn't, she isn't pursuing this kind of relationship and therefore has the most fun um, with men and without them. Um, but with with Carrie, it's that she's mental. <laughs> it's like there, there's basically, there's no situation that that woman won't make as difficult as possible. And yeah, men are pretty straightforward in general, not just Mr. Big, but men in general. Like yeah. she's so good at this sort of like, you know, first three dates, four dates. And then it all, everything gets like, she kind of hones in and the, the way she, like, no wonder he goes to Paris. The way she picks at him and picks at him, his cigar is this, is that. He's looking at another woman, who cares? And um, <laughs> then... <laughs> I know, but who cares? You are you like, are seconds away from saying let men be men. I mean, <laughs> I'm just saying I've been in a relationship for seven years because I let men be men. <laughs> God, um, and then and then with Miranda, it's this thing of like, yeah, she's she like you can you can't sort of get by on just being like clever like you have to she's got no warmth whatsoever she's so wooden she's so guarded and like n- n- she's a very hard person to fall in love with and then charlotte is just a pretend person like i've been i've been like building this theory of charlotte throughout the series because she's the only one who doesn't really have 
much like drama happen in this series. No, like, she, she doesn't, doesn't really have a serious, you know, she she has like as much sex as Samantha in that she's constantly going on dates and it's always just like a slightly loony situation for her to yeah, be in. Yeah, this is her slottiest series actually. Yeah, definitely. And the thing is, is that like whenever you zoom in to, on Charlotte on a date with someone or having some flirty banter with them, she is just a made-up human being. She doesn't talk like she does with her friends. No. She says these extremely innocuous things in this very fake tone of voice. It reminds me of, like, one of my favourite scenes from Girls where Marnie goes to Ray's apartment and she sits down at his table and she's having a really shit time and work at friendships and relationships and everything. And she says, I want you to tell me what's wrong with me. And he just says, you're fake as fuck and everyone can tell. <laughs> it's... And that's like Charlotte. She, she she's always just saying like, "Well, ba 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 ba," kind of things. Yes. Really innocuous things that like you would fall asleep mid sentence. Like it's no wonder there's a whole episode with her in another series about how a guy falls asleep while he's fucking her because she's it's so. In this, it's in this series. It's in this series. Is it this one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which she leads just... her to the tantric workshop, which I think is her main dramatic like. That's the kind yeah. of climax of her whole story is that she thinks she's bad in bed and then she goes to this karmic workshop. Do you know that scene? I re- I rewatched it last night. That scene is the first time with those three, four actresses, although Charlotte's not really participating in it, that I really feel like they were corpsing. It really feels like the three of them, it's the dynamic of three actresses laughing. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. If you rewatch it, it really feels like they're filming them like they don't realise they're being filmed. Whenever I watch that scene, I always think of our friend Malika Heisey, who texted, she, she texted one of us and she tweeted being like, they're very rude at that workshop. <laughs> they are very rude at that workshop. They are very rude at that workshop. Um, I totally, I'm really interested in this idea of fake Charlotte. Maybe she's like sort of Melania Trump. Um, I really, really like this idea of like Charlotte the Mirage. And actually, I think that's really, um, they really delve into that in the chicken dance, which I think is one Mm. of the best episodes of this series, where they all go to the the wedding of the interior designer and Mm -hmm. uh, Miranda's friend from London. And Charlotte wears a really, really revealing dress to be a bridesmaid. And I think, and it's because it's black as well. And she's at a wedding, and she says, "I've been a, I've been a demure bridesmaid so many times. This time, people are going to look at me," which is an energy <laughs> it's I so well delivered. Definitely know about as a serial bridesmaid. And um, <laughs> <laughs> she meets this single man. He says, "I'm going to be walking you down the aisle." One of the ushers. Mm-hmm. And they have, over the course of this... It's almost like a bottleneck episode. It's like half the episode is at the wedding, isn't it? And they have this kind of fake long-term relationship that takes place over the course of, a, of an evening at a wedding. Now, this has happened to me. This is a thing that happens at weddings with single people. You're around love, you're around families, you're around champagne, you're allowed around like warm Motown hits, children <laughs> running around. It feels cozy, it feels wholesome, it feels suddenly in reach. It feels like it, it's you can almost touch it. It feels like you just need to find a part you just need to find a partner and then this can be yours and it's very potent at a wedding. It's why obviously so many single people Fuck at a wedding. I think it's like 
fear and panic and horniness and emotion and reassure. It's just like, it's like a big day for a single person, I think. Right. And it's very easy to, yeah, fast track with someone at a wedding. And Charlotte sits with this man and they start talking about how many children they're going to have and what song is going to be their song. And it was just so believable to me, that whole sequence. And then they basically break up by the end of the wedding. Literally, that has happened to me at a wedding before. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. Like, But anyway, yeah, I think Charlotte does like that kind of... Charlotte is fake. And she cares about fake things. Fake things get her off. And like, that's what her journey is with, you know, and Trey, it's fake. Like, that's what next series is all about. She falls in love with a fake thing and a fake man and their bond is fake, but it all looks, it's a prop. Like everything looks perfect, but it's a set. It's actor, it's not real. And actually what her journey through this show is, is to find reality. There's something I'm very interested in. I'm going to start clocking it every time it happens. I counted three times when I rewatched this season, but I didn't watch every episode. So, um, which is something we noticed in our deep dive of season one, when we um, read the anal sex scene beat for beat, which was very fun, um, is Charlotte says, I can't do that. I went to Smith, which is an Mm. Ivy League school. Mm. And I think it's three times that I counted in this series, Charlotte clocks someone's alma mater. Like, <laughs> it's always about who went to Princeton, who went to Brown, who went to the... It's always the same beat of like, yeah. we can't do that, he went to Brown, we can't do that, he went to Princeton. Or he went to Princeton, he wouldn't do that kind of thing. And it's this very interesting thing of like, this person who has not updated their value system since they were 21 because they've never been given anything better to replace it. It's such an important character detail, I think. And we're, you know, we're the same age as these characters are in this series, more or less. And like, when would you ever bring up someone's university? Like, Unless you, like, and if you knew someone who did, you would think it was weird. Like, yeah. if, she, if, if, like, someone was dating someone casually and they brought up that they went to Oxford or Cambridge or, like, St. Andrews or whatever, you would think it was fucking weird. And you would think that person's a weird snob. <laughs> you hate Charlotte. I think I do. <laughs> but there's also this thing of, like, in that episode, um... Which is both, a, it's one of those very annoying Sex and the City episodes in that some of it's very well written and some of it is absolutely dodgy and racist as fuck. So you're like, oh, it, you have that sort of Tyra Banks feeling of like, we were all rooting for you. But there's this episode called oh, The I Cast know. System. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt exactly the same. There's this one thing where they're all getting their pedicures done and they're all talking about the suitability of Steve and... Miranda saying she doesn't care about that stuff, that he's a bartender and that she's a lawyer, even though it's quite obvious that she does. Mm. Um, and then, you know, Carrie says, well, you know, isn't it like this? You, you see plenty of women who make less money than their husbands. Why isn't it fine the other way around? And, you know, they're having this kind of debate or whatever. And they're all telling off Charlotte for being a snob, which she is being. And then Charlotte says... You want to pretend like we live in a classless society and we don't. Mm. And then it pulls out and it kind of shows what they're doing, which is they're getting pedicures, Mm. you know. Um, And it's like, it's like, 
Yeah, like she's a yeah. snob, but she's also real about it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And also you and I have talked about the Stephen Miranda story. It is about class, I think. And you see that yeah. with how Miranda reacts to his mother. And you see that in this episode, in this series with the episode where they break up because she's, you know, embarrassed to take the love of her life to a corporate evening, not because he's a bartender or because he but because he because he has like an embarrassing suit that i don't think that is about yeah. money i think that is about class that's about that's about social signals that's not because she doesn't really mind so much about the bartending the bartending thing so actually it's like a rare moment of commenting on something uncomfortable in sex in the city that is like true and poignant yeah but the thing is it's not it's not almost about because the money is a big part of their relationship because it's she's always like first of all when he first appears and we're going to do their meet cute in our deep dive in a moment and I'm so excited to go through it um but she is extremely dismissive of him from the beginning and she makes lots of cracks about him being a bartender um in a way that feels very like yeah just very classist and very snobby but is also just sort of caught up in how she feels about men generally and her cynicism towards them and then the more she gets she falls in love with him the more she says well I don't care about that stuff I don't care about that stuff and then he tells her about his suit he has a gold suit it's corduroy and it becomes not just about the fact that he doesn't have the money to buy a better suit which she is more than happy to pay for him it's about that he doesn't know why the suit is bad yeah and that's where money and class become different things I think yeah so well put and it does persist and also yeah yeah it's it's like a rare moment in sex in the city that encompasses a manhattan other than a within a, a teeny tiny part of of that city yeah you know like the moment when she goes back to his apartment and it's like the kind of apartment she's horrified by this apartment but it's like the kind of apartment most New Yorkers live in. It's like a one room yeah, yeah. apartment that probably costs a fuck ton of money. And Steve makes that incredible joke where he said, I modeled it on Robert De Niro's apartment in Taxi Driver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love Steve. Steve, so... St- is, is Steve your number one man? He's up there, isn't he? No, we've argued about this before, but okay. So my number one like fantasy man of Sex and the City. You hate this. You're going to get so it. mad. You're going to turn I off your it. mic. I fucking love Alexander Petrovsky. I, I love it. the Russian. I know you hate it. But I think that's because, like, I'm, I'm, I'm very much in a relationship with, like, a handsome, goofy, wonderful Steve. You're in a relationship with Steve. Yeah. He's, like, the best Steve there ever was. He's, yeah. like, so, he's just so great. And I'm, like, but, Everything that, I don't know, I just, I, I find the sort of international artist who thinks you're a silly, stupid little girl very hot. <laughs> I think you want one Sometimes night with Petrovsky, guess, don't you? But you want to end up with Steve. Yeah, I, I just, a long weekend, yeah. Like, sometimes I get tired of my equitable, respectful uh, extremely fun relationship and I just want to have an old Russian with whom I have nothing in common not laugh at my jokes <laughs> and force feed you expensive chocolate covered fruit yeah exactly 
Um, I think we should go to our deep dive now. Let's, because I think, and I'm so glad that we both came to this conclusion separately. I think that this is the best meet cute of Sex and the City. Oh yeah, totally agree. Totally. It's like, there's so much friction and so much, okay, who are we going to be? Oh, are we going to, are we going to do it that way? Shall we? Yeah. Um, I'm going to do Steve because okay. I love doing Steve's okay. voice. I'll talk us into the frame first because I think it's important, the context of the whole episode. Yeah. So at the, at the beginning of the episode, Miranda is in a, she's at a stand-up comedy show on like a second date with a guy. Um, and it's like a horrible thing where the guy leaves the room and then he leaves his phone on the table. The phone goes off. The stand-up takes it. It turns out to be his wife. The entire comedy club then laughs at Miranda, right? And it turns out this guy's been married the whole time. And she's obviously upset at this thing, upset that this man has lied to her and this kind of all men are liars, all men will lie to you kind of thing. She's also sick shit of the whole like big drama. She's sick of men in general. It's like her at her most cynical. But more than that, I think that we reach this point with Miranda where she's also just sick of being humiliated because... Is you see it time? I think for, you see it more and more with Miranda, where in situations throughout the series where she lets herself go, like say when she does something a bit kinky with a man, like whether it's dirty talk or whatever, or spanking or whatever, every time she sort of gives into the kink, she's made a fool of. She puts yeah. her foot wrong. Yeah, she's she, the, the guy rejects her. It's so true. When the minute she yeah. allows herself to be vulnerable, it happens with the spanking in series one when she finds out yeah. a guy likes spanking and she and she makes a joke about it and he recoils. It happens when she says, you like a finger in your ass in this yeah. series yeah. to the guy who wants to talk dirty, but not that kind of dirty. And it happens in this series when she does the, when she flashes her neighbour and it turns out he wasn't flashing her. And actually there's yes. nothing that makes a person more vulnerable than when they feel they're safe enough to try out something experimental in sex and someone t- says to them, no, you're not allowed to do that. You're so right. That is like, she constantly tries to be open. And every time she does, yeah. she's humiliated. She's humiliated. And that's why Sex and the City isn't a sitcom because the characters don't go back to zero at the end of every episode. Yeah. They actually do gather all of this experience totally. and their their actions are motivated by what happens. And so we begin this story with Miranda where she's literally laughed out of a club because how she's gotten it wrong with someone again. She's sort of barely trusted someone and have it blow up in her face again. And she's completely cynical about men. She's sitting in this bar waiting for Carrie. Carrie is evidences yet more terrible friend behavior by saying like, oh, I left a message in your machine an hour ago. I met Biggs. He has veal. And then Miranda like slams the phone down and it's like she's pissed off. And who's behind the bar but Steve? And he says, hang on, I'm going to do my Steve voice Go for as much it. as I can possibly okay. handle it. I'm not going to do a Miranda, but you have to do Steve. Problem? <laughs> Sorry, that was so bad. Okay, problem? <laughs> problem. No, I'll have another glass of wine. Please. Please what? I'll have another glass of wine. Please. I've just realised this is the first time that she's been classist. Yeah. This is so good. She says, are you allowed to talk to me like that? And she's so disgusted. Yeah. Because as well, like, we mentioned this last week as well, this thing of... um. 
in the in the anal sex deep dive <laughs> that we went on, which is a very misleading way to talk about that part of the podcast. But even so, where she sort of the taxi driver looks back at her while she's kind of pontificating, mm. and she says, "Hello, you're driving." Mm. This thing of like, um, she's so sort of in her own world and in control of her own world, yeah. That she she includes service people into that. She does, and like like so many New Yorkers, she doesn't see them as being people. And she says to Steve, are you allowed to talk to me like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. And he pours her a glass. And she says, thank you. Yeah. And then he goes, Steve, thank you, Steve. <laughs> she says, that's really very cute, but I'm not really in the mood. I'm not really in the mood, Steve. And it's it's so good. <laughs> it's such a cute meet you. It's, it's so charming. But it's also this thing of like, he's just forcing her to humanize him. And forcing yeah. her to see him. And like, and it's not even about... It's a little about flirting, but it's mostly about like... You know, she's just accused Carrie of being self-absorbed. And now she herself is being self-absorbed. And not seeing the humanity of the other person in the situation. Yeah. And it's also that classic rom-com thing of like... Yeah, that f- of friction of like... Yeah. You know, two, it's not easy. It's two people showing each other attention in an unusual or awkward or charged way. So she says, I'm not a total bitch. I just had a fight with somebody. And he said, and this I, this is a good bit of powder. He says, I heard boyfriend. None of your business. Girlfriend. Butcher. Butcher. The veal. I took a shot. And it's, it's like- a really neat. It's a really neat little joke. And then this also is this emo- amazing moment where I think this is Steve making a comment about her snobbery and her assumptions because she says, what are you reading? And he says, the joy of bartending Hemingway. Because <laughs> it's him saying like, oh, what? You think men like me don't, you know, like yeah. I wouldn't understand literature is obviously what you think. And then mm-hmm. she says, so what, you're funny? And he says, slow down. That's a nice coat to Ron. Enjoy. It's on me. And she immediately says, why would that be? Why would that be? Yeah. And this is so this is so telling of her character because it shows, as you said, she's tried to put herself in vulnerable situations over and over again. Let's not forget that episode one of this series, we are reminded of a man who broke her heart, who she runs away from Mm -hmm. uh, when she bumps into him on the street. So like we've seen her erect this iron gate around herself. So then when she says, why would that be? It's like that that level of cynicism and lack of faith in humanity that is so easy to get to when you've been single for most of your life of like, why are you being kind to me? Why are you showing me affection? I, I don't take to this well. This now makes me feel really uncomfortable. Yeah, that it, 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 like, it reminds me of a conversation we had a while ago when Ghost was coming out, of which basically of like, People either go on two Tinder dates or they go on 200, you know? It's like people either get scooped up really early in that sort of butterflies. Wow, I can't believe there are so many fit men hiding in my pocket. Or they go on so many that they become completely cynical about what that form of meeting people has to offer. And that cynicism forms a shell around them and then they become even more unknowable. So they go on even more dates. Yeah, And that's where she is. She's on her 200th hinge date. Exactly. Carrie's voiceover said, they did a little more than talk. 
After work, they went back to her place where Steve, the bartender, served... <laughs> this is bad. This served is bad. Miranda two orgasms straight up. <laughs> <laughs> Crap. Um, and he goes, so that was really special. And then she says, sure, is that your shirt over there? He says, can I get your phone number? She says, why? To call you up and ask you for a date. Look, look, Steve, look, Steve. You don't have to do this. Steve. You don't have to make believe you're going to call. Let's call this what was, let's just call this what this was, a one night stand. And he says to her, he kisses her on the head and he goes, you're a real pisser. <laughs> oh, it's so cute, that bit. It's so, oh, it's so good. So good. Stop by the bar, see me sometime. And she said, sure. Okay, whatever. Thanks. Bye. Great sex. And I just think it is, it's, um, it goes back to that to to that kind of big theme of series one of like women emulating male behavior. Yes, women emulating yes. to for self protection. This is her creating a persona out of defense and survival, and it's and do you know what they just I, it, the reason why I think this meet you is so good is that it establishes these two as two characters who I think are the most believably compatible. Yes. Other than this this class issue that they have to work out over the course of a number of series, I truly believe when you see scenes of Steve and Miranda like drinking beer, mm. you know, on the corner of a street outside a pub or organising, you know, worrying about Brady and organising Brady or they're eating takeout together yeah. or they're having like a lazy morning shag. I just, I just believe them as a couple. I believe that they're two people who would have a real laugh together. Like they've got that they're, 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 they're just so well crafted to be entirely compatible in a way that I often feel in sex in the city. You just, that's kind of missing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And they do kind of emulate the dynamic a little bit with Harry and Charlotte, but with Harry and Charlotte, it's like, yeah, they, whereas as it's, although I really like that whole Harry and Charlotte dynamic, it's kind of an oversimplified version. Like if, you know, Miranda and Steve are like quite a complex sort of class thing. And the interesting thing is that the class difference is actually quite minimal. Like she's sort of from, yeah, you know, you get the idea like middle class Philadelphia. He's from sort of working class Queens. Like it's the thing. And I found mm. it, I find it very, very interesting, particularly as someone as like a non-British person who lives here. And the fascination with class here is so much different to how it is in Ireland. And it's so much more obsessed yeah. with tiny slivers of difference. Like the differences between lower middle yeah. and middle of working and lower working. And it's all this thing. And it's... It, the, the, the arguments are never between the very rich and the very poor. You know, it's... Yeah, it's so You get this idea that like Miranda's grandfather was probably in the same class as Steve's mother. It's more of like a, that mm, kind of mm. thing, you know? Yeah, it's it's so true. And it's like, just like, I remember you saying to me once that as an Irish person viewing how British people talk about the delineations of class, you just find so confusing of just like, if you're someone who has this sort of thing that you like tea cosy, yeah. then it means you're this type of, working class but if you have this type of type of car then it means you're middle class or if you and I think with Steve and Miranda there are these small things she gets hung up on like the old corduroy suit 
Well, you know the way she talks about how how Steve's mum brings this kind of tacky yeah. uh, cake yes. to um, to the christening from a bakery in Queens with white frosting, or when Steve goes out with a girl who they don't explicitly say, but you imagine is more from Steve's background. Like she, she seems mm-hmm. like she probably isn't in the corporate world. Debbie. She says, oh, Debbie. She says, and Debbie gets on so well with Steve's mom. And she says, yeah. yeah. And she calls her ma. Hey ma. Yeah. She says Debbie's, <laughs> Debbie's nails and shoes are acrylic. So it's like these small, mm-hmm. you're so right that like those arguments about class always happened most between the people for whom there are like just a small amount of degrees between. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, and then those tiny signifiers matter so much. And as well, it's because those tiny degrees are often generational degrees of class, where as as I was saying, it's like, oh, my grandfather was where, where your mother or parents currently are kind of thing. And I think what that creates in people is like, no, no, no. Like even on a subconscious level is like a, no, my story should be about upward mobility, not about downward mobility, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and how we're all supposed to be, like, sort of progressing on to this sort of next level of economic and class thing. And and it's just sort of... And it's silly, and and it's exposed for how silly it actually is. But then Steve and... uh, Then... Charlotte and Harry it's a, it, it's lovely and he's a great actor and they have a great chemistry but it's a lot more it feels like more of a Beauty and the Beast thing with some Judaism thrown in Definitely, you know yeah yeah, it's yeah like, definitely isn't it amazing if someone as pretty as Charlotte could love someone as not great looking as him yeah you know? yeah totally yeah they're, they're, this is the beginning of I think the most believable love story and also I've always thought that Miranda's overarching story from series one to six I am most convinced that that was plotted beat for beat from the beginning yeah yeah because like what I see in every series is a journey like stories within that series that are self-contained that Miranda goes through but I see more than any other character this really really tightly architectured progression that is tracked so well and the the progression is about someone learning to open up and soften and if you think that the last moment we ever see of Miranda is her bathing oh Caroline's gonna cry don't talk about I'll cry (laughs) is Miranda throwing herself into something that's sad and uncomfortable and strange and intimate with a woman who she has nothing in common with, but who she loves now by yeah. by dint of the notion of family. Like when you think about that woman, that is the most moving and poignant endpoint from a woman who begins oh. in episode one, looking down the barrel of the camera. I think she's one of the first talking heads basically saying like, I don't believe in love. Like it's yeah. so perfectly done. It's such a be. it could almost be like a film in itself, Miranda's journey and, and like, you know, that that first episode where she meets Steve, she's so harsh with him and her barriers are so up. And as Caroline said, we've seen over the course of a series and a half why those barriers have been constructed. And then he comes to meet her friends. Uh, his, his, they're in a, I don't like this, they're in a bar called Denial. Um, <laughs> so she's in denial with Steve, who's being really open and available to her and she makes some kind of 
quite caustic jokes in front of her friends, basically belittling what he means to her. And then uh, Big shows up when he wasn't going to show up and suddenly it kind of reignites her faith. And then she leaves denial and she runs out of the bar. <laughs> and this is when I think you're going you're gonna to hate, I think you're going to find this bit mortifying film studies student of me. She runs out into the rain and she says, maybe I can believe to Steve. And then they start kissing. And I wonder if that scene is in reference to Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh. She's wearing a little black cocktail dress. It's pouring with rain and he's hunched over wearing a, a trench coat. Oh my God. And it's in a Manhattan street. Uh, because they do talk about the rain because it's like, oh, you know, they're talking about urban relationship myths and they're like, oh, it's always in the rain. She runs to him yeah. in the rain. So, but like, oh my God, the Breakfast at Tiffany's thing because the, the thing of Breakfast at Tiffany's as well is about letting your defences down really yeah, and, it's about, and, it's and about giving the cat a name, you know, yeah. and all yeah. that. Oh, oh, very well, very good. <laughs> and then very the other good. moment that I think tracks so well with the Stephen Miranda thing is we watch their relationship unfold in the next couple of episodes. And the bit that always makes me cry is when she's too, they have this issue with scheduling because he's at the bar and she's got this mm-hmm. corporate job. And she can't kind of make space for him in her life again because she's self-protective and she's, you know, defensive. And then he, they have a huge row and then he rings her at the end of her shift and says, look at the moon. It's a, it's a blue moon. Look at the moon, Miranda. Look at the moon. Miranda, it's me, Steve. (laughs) His weird little whisper. (laughs) It's very good, your Steve. Thank but again, you. like that that moment, I think is just and and then the thing that always moves me is the voice of Carrie says, uh, she looks up at the moon. She's really her she her breath is taken away by it, and, she, and Carrie says, Miranda finally learned how to slow down. That makes you cry. It does. It does. Yeah, because yeah, I just think it's like I just totally understand. I totally understand what how easy it would be to bulldoze through your thirties as a heartbroken and humiliated woman just saying no I'm not doing this I'm not making space for it I'm not making myself vulnerable to it I'm not gonna soften up and open up to this no I don't want to I completely understand how that happens mom deserves better than a drugstore card this mother's day surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. add your favorite photos a heartfelt message and we'll even mail it for you the same day all for just five dollars From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com It brings me to a theme. (laughs) Go on. A theme I had a little think about today. And when I put it in the shared doc, you immediately started taking the piss out of me. (laughs) Miranda and the natural world. Right. Talk me through it. Beat by beat. Normally you and I are so on the same wavelength with everything. And I saw that sentence and I was like, what? Where the fuck is she going with this? Miranda and the natural world. (laughs) It's like... 
David Attenborough. <laughs> so here's my theory, and I wish I'd taken some time on this one before, because I can tell you're not convinced. No, um, no, go on. Basically, I think when you have a character who's that highly strung and that hard to get to, like of like even like even Samantha, who is like a romantic, um, I mean like a hyphen romantic. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. Um, she's still up for romance. You know, she mm. still likes like she she's is. totally willing to be swept up in a thing for thirty six hours, even though she knows it'll only be thirty six hours. And like, so true. She's She's up for it. Like she likes, she likes the bands. She loves the sesh. <laughs> but Miranda is so remote because she's so defensive because she's so often humiliated and she's just wrapped up in so much. And she's basically a woman of stone to so many people that meet her that in order to move her at all as a writer, in order to like really like inspire a change in her behavior, it has to be something that's all powerful like the moon, like mm. this, like this, this rare blue moon, this huge torrential rain, this unlikely mm. pregnancy. Like it has yes. to be. Like this, there's this, this thing as well when she, like later in the show, when she goes on her honeymoon to the countryside, and she's so overwhelmed by it. She's overwhelmed by the dog with Steve. It's like mm. things that she can't control that are like divine godlike from nature whether it's you know babies or the moon or whatever they're the things that knock her off course and i find that very compelling i think that's very compelling and i (laughs) also think that that is a type of city woman that i know who is so moved by the magnitude of nature the natural world and it always surprises me and i think as you said it's because it, it there's nothing else to do but surrender so it's like yeah, yeah. it's it's like a, it's a it's um a relief to be to to surrender and to relish in those spectacles of nature. I completely agree. Basically I think what oh. we're discovering is Miranda is the is the psychology that is most deftly built, I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Good. I'm glad I'm glad we got here. <laughs> I think I think it is Miranda's season actually because the first season is about establishing Carrie as the sort of dramatic heroine, but yeah. like and then and then we have we really care about Miranda's journey with Steve and all this kind of thing and it's it, it and giving her that big breakfast at Tiffany's moment is almost like the show saying to us like we care about all of them we're not going to just send them on these like endless tableaus of like ridiculous dates like this is all going somewhere we do care about these people just as much as we care about Carrie yeah um and if you were watching the show in like the year 2001 maybe you wouldn't have realized that yet but i think you would yeah. once the steve thing happens and um, it's so telling as well that we're now into the sort of middle section we're talking about the middle section of this series and I'm kind of like totally uninterested in talking about what happens with Big and Carrie because it's just the same story over and over again over the course of five episodes, which is Carrie thinks she's making headway. She then gets hung up on something small that she wants him to do to prove commitment. He refuses to do it. And then he either relinquishes a tiny bit or he explains why it's so difficult for him to do it. It's just that over and over again, basically. It's, it's actually really uninteresting. <laughs> it's very uninteresting. And it's like, um, as well, you never really get 
there's no there there with Big, really, where it's like, you never get this moment where he's like, here's why I'm very weird about this particular thing. Like, there's one bit where he's like, oh, I've handed out, like, five keys and you don't get them back and blah. Um, and it's, but it's like, you don't get, you never get this moment where it's like, here's the real baggage I'm carrying with my ex or whatever. And part of that, I think, is the like, oh, he has to remain unknowable, so he remains infuriating. But I do sort of wish, looking back on those episodes, that the writer is had given us a bit more to fall in love with. Like, he's I not totally very lovable. I totally agree. I totally agree. And you're so right. I kept, I keep, I suppose the one moment where you get a bit of depth to him is in series six, I think, when he has the, the heart operation. Yeah. And Carrie it. goes round to nurse him. And he has this one moment of like acute vulnerability where basically he says like, I'm afraid. And actually, yeah. that's that's actually it, isn't it? That's what it is. Like, that's the... Because as you said, he has to remain unknowable for us to remain interested in him and for us to remain frustrated with him. But actually, now I think about it, because I was just like agreeing with you being like, was it that his wife hurt him? Was it something that happened in his childhood? Was it, why is he like this? And actually, his only moment of vulnerability across six seasons is the moment where he has heart surgery because I think like all men in their 40s who won't commit to you is that they're afraid of death <laughs> that's what it is <laughs> yeah that's, that's yeah. the reason they're being shitty to you that's the depth of their complexity it's existential masculine virility panic it's about I don't want yeah. to lose my masculinity I don't want to lose my power therefore I can't I can't commit to anything yeah, and if I start move, if I start moving, I'll die. Yeah, yeah, that's so, the complexity of Big. He, it's, he's in a midlife crisis, basically. I think through and from series one to series six. You're totally right. Because what is he like? Forty two, forty three when we meet he's him. Forty three when we meet him. Yeah, yeah. And also, why doesn't Big have kids? <laughs> like it feels like he should, right? <laughs> I love these like mum takes that you're doing this evening. <laughs> Let men be Why men. Don't... Never never trust a man without kids. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. Why doesn't he have kids? Because he's, uh, yeah, why doesn't he have kids? Why do you think he doesn't have kids? I don't know. Well, we, we meet his first wife, don't we? The book editor. Yeah, who's gorgeous. And very believable is his first wife, I think. Very believable. But you would think, I think maybe, you would think that, it would have been good if they got Natasha pregnant, I think. Yeah. If I were the showrunner, I would have gotten Natasha pregnant and then I would have had him leave her while she's pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. That would be good. But alas. So these, these kind of, this relationship with, that's happening in the middle with Big and Carrie, I mean, do you even want to, there's not really much to say, is there? It's just... There's a few bits I want to land on. Okay, go on. Well, first of all, the, the depressingness with which the small things he gives her and how happy she is about them. So this, where he gives her the electric toothbrush head Ugh. or the spare toothbrush. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think there's two... Pathetically, I think there's two different toothbrush storylines within this show about Big giving her a toothbrush. Um, and both times it's a big deal. Uh, and she gets the toothbrush off of him and then the same week that the interior designer gets engaged and she's the, she's sort of looking at herself being like, 
I'm so happy for this like tiny shred of this man's respect. And there's this woman who's yeah. getting married to this guy after a week. And that um, is very real. That sense of like feasting off the crumbs that a man throws at you. Yes. Making a banquet yes. from nothing. Like I, I know that what that is from <laughs> my twenties. banquet 20s. from nothing. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it is someone just flicking you a crumb and then you taking it home to your friends and presenting them with like, a banquet God. of riches. I try. Yeah. I, I keep trying to imagine like you and me going to dinner, and then you saying to me, "So and so gave me a toothbrush," and me like having to pretend to be excited for you. Oh no! Don't worry, Caroline. I have learnt now. You would not pretend to be excited for me. <laughs> you have called bullshit on every relationship I've ever been in, and it's why I love you. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my God, I'm your Miranda. I guess that makes sense. You are. (laughs) I guess it makes sense. Another thing I really like. So what I really like is the two times that they break up is um, at the uh, the end of season one where she doesn't go to the same parts with him. And midway through season two where it's that brilliant episode called Le Delure Exquisie. (laughs) I think that the S&M episode of Sex in the City is an example of a theme being executed so well from top to bottom through the different storylines, through the settings, through the voiceover. The music even. The music, it just feels like really artfully done and not at all, you know, as clunky as Miranda being in a bar called Denial. This That feels like <laughs> the, what happens when it goes wrong and this is this episode... Yeah. Is, is when it goes right. So it opens with Samantha at, at a fetish club that she's, it's like a restaurant, <laughs> a fetish themed restaurant that yeah. she is doing the PR for. And she's dressed as like a hot dom and they're talking about kinks and fetishes. And she says, you know, we should be respectful for the people who put it all out there in the open. Everyone has a kink or a fetish. Miranda then starts dating a man who seems very bookish and reserved and it turns out that he likes fucking in public that ends with Hot. an excruciating scene where he comes in front of his mum and dad walking in on them oh, it's God, horrible that, that is spicy isn't it um charlotte has her thing with the shoes she has this uh shoe she meets someone who has a shoe fetish and some and then carrie has this uh there's like this metaphor with big that kind of keys into what we're saying about it being an addict relationship that she's addicted to the pain of their relationship and it's just, it's like an S&M relationship and she's the masochist. Yeah, it's really well done. And it, and it is sort of like, it's interesting because it's in the midpoint of the scene, and I'm the midpoint, maybe it's three quarters to the end um, and they break up and yet again, it's her deciding that she can't do this anymore. Like, I I I forget because so much of the their relationship is her prodding him to do things that actually all of the decision making in their relationship is done by her. She is the actor and he's kind of just kind of coming along for the ride the whole time. And so at the beginning and the first season breaks up with her there they don't they don't go to St. Bart's. And then at this point he she breaks up with him again. She says, Go to Paris, I'm not gonna go. And then he leaves. Again, so she's once again the person who decides that enough is enough. And what I also like, and maybe this is a bit of crafty styling from Patricia Fields, 
is she's in this beautiful blue nightgown, right? Mm. And it's almost exactly the same color and quite a similar cut to the Dolce & Gabbana dress that she wears at the very beginning of the series when mm. she goes to the to the fashion thing with the new Yankee and then she's pictured in the in the paper on page three with him. And it's like this thing, we're, we're almost done the season, but she's literally right back at the start. Yes. Oh my God, that's so true. And she has to go back and do it all again. Yeah. She has to yeah. get over him all over again. She's back to episode one. That is so true. I wonder, I'd love to know if that was intentional or whether we're just being super nerdy and reading in <laughs> intentionality where there is none. It's just a, some people who went to their job in the 90s and we're still talking about it. <laughs> no, I think that's really smart. It is that Groundhog Day and you do feel, and maybe that's why like it's so infuriating and boring and depressing and exhausting, the big beats of mm-hmm. this series because you do have that feeling when she says go to Paris I'm not going to come where you're like oh thank god thank god because the minute he leaves I mean, and he's wearing that horrible purple shirt and she looks back <sighs> as he looks Big's back at casual her. clothes are so depressing <laughs> he dresses Big like someone who's retired like <laughs> Horrible. Only big meet Big depressing. when he's coming from work. Like, yeah. Ugh. Big's depressing. Yeah. Big is depressing. He's depressing. That flat's depressing. I don't like that flat. He's always opening a bottle of red in that granite kitchen. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, but also, I have things to say, you know, in defense of Big, even though I never like him. But she's moaning about the fact that he never goes to her flat. She never has food in. Like, she's always around. Caroline hates flats that don't... Caroline gets angry every time she thinks there aren't any sweets. (laughs) That is a very specific issue, I think, that maybe only you have. You can't can't project your psychology immediately onto Big. He might be fine that she doesn't have, you know, a Haribo drawer. I'm... I I don't need you to have a Haribo drawer. I just think it's weird. I think you do. I think you do, Caroline, because every time you hear you order it on fucking Uber Eats. (laughs) Yeah, so so that's, it's, it, yeah. Is it weird he doesn't go to her flat? He's got the nice big flat. He's got the nice big flat. He's always cooking something lovely. He's got good wine in. I would want to hang out there also. Yeah. Who would want to hang out in her flat with no food in? I'm sorry. I don't want to go to someone's house if I'm not going to get fed. I said it. There you go. You have it now. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to say about Big and Carrie? Or can we fucking move on to the post-Big breakup? Because I think that's the best Carrie section of the whole yes, series. Yes, let's move on. Go on. You take the floor. So I, my favourite opening of sex of a Sex in the City episode ever, I think, is the episode after she breaks up with Big, where it's just yes. the essence of Carrie where for um it's just kind of a montage of her speaking manically and in very unconvincingly about why she's so happy that her and big have broken up and it's so it's so um self-aware of the writers because it's sending up the worst parts of Carrie with her saying you know I've got more what does she say she says I've got more charisma oh my my god I almost want you to read it it's so good it's so embarrassing it's like So she says, 
I feel sorry for Big, I really do, because if you think about it, I was the best thing that ever happened to him. Actually, I pity him because I get to walk away and be me and he has to walk away and stay him. Who wants to be him when you can be me? I'm smart, I'm funny, I was this thing, I was it. I was this magic moment. I was the abracadabra. I was totally the poof in the relationship. I've got more poof in one finger than he could ever have. Sometimes I poof just hailing a cab. So I guess it's better to know now now so I can go poof someone else, someone who deserves me and not some screwed up, insecure guy who can't deal with a woman who's got her act together. Oh my God. Oh God, I it goes on. Have... Now I'm going to end oh up deliriously God. happy and Bigger's going to die old and alone and I pity him, I really pity him. Do you know what that reminds me of? Well, I had a breakup once and I was in a great phase of being <laughs> over it. And I was talking to you and you just listened to me rant and you said, I don't want the energy that you spent on loving him to be just transferred to hating him. Oh, wise of me. I remember this day. It's true where it's like, okay, we've just been listening for however many months about how obsessed you are with him and how, you know, like basically it's the same, it's different sides of the same coin and it's still taking up a huge amount of space in your head that it shouldn't be taking up. I I want that monologue to be on a poster in the same font as the train spotting poster. (laughs) You know the... (laughs) Please, someone make that for me. Put it on Redbubble. I'll buy it. I'll frame it. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) It's so good. And the denouement of that speech is you just see the girls, the recipients of this, of the various parts of this rant looking more and more worn down by it. Patient, but worn down. And then she kind of suddenly stops talking and breathes out. And the three of them are looking at her and they say... We can't take this anymore. You've got to go to therapy. So good. Such a good opening. So good. It's so good. And like, uh, as we were saying before, you do need a friend sometimes to just sort of have that like, okay. And she says like, what? I I thought the whole point of a breakup was that you get to talk about your friends. And then being like, yeah, but no. Like that thing of, of like, yeah, you've crossed the line of just an ordinary ranting. And now this is like, this is a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then now I'm thinking about it. This latter section of series mm-hmm. two, I think is the best run of shags that Carrie ever gets. I think it is. You're right. You are definitely her best run of love interest because Justin yeah. Theroux isn't quite a shag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sad. Love interest. Because she gets Bon Jovi. Yes. In the therapist's waiting room. Yes, yeah. She then gets Patrick Casey, the alcoholic, my dream man. <laughs> oh my God. You were the then alcoholic. Gets, she gets Justin Theroux, who we will get onto, don't worry. And she gets. Who else? Is it just those three? I think it's those three, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but those are those are like three of the strongest male cameos, I think, in all of Sex and the City that Carrie dates. Yeah, and they're basically one after the other. Yeah. Um, I, I this is something that you and I talk about a lot. I would I would almost call it a founding tenet of our friendship, but how obsessed we are with the Justin Theroux episode, 
and why I think we're going to end up saying this a lot, which is why on earth would you put so much effort into fleshing out someone's vibe and backstory if you were only going to use them for one episode? Like, the amount of sex in the city just throws away is incredible to me. Yeah. Like, not only is he this, like, incredibly charming on-screen presence and all this, and he's, like, really well-written and they have great banter, and he's kind of like a proto-burger, isn't he? Because he's a writer as well, and they have the witty banter. Um, but he, she writes, they, they write this whole family, this great, like, New York, intellectual, sort of busy, loving family that you just want to be in, and she wants to be in, and she sort of disappears yeah. into them. And then the sex doesn't work with the guy, obviously, so it can't work out long term. And she has this like big conversation with his mother about, about like how oh we can still be friends, and she's like no we can't, and it's it's really good, and it's like wow this really feels like it should be at least a three episode arc and oh, not it just should. one thing. It really should. I think that episode called Shortcomings. I think it is maybe my favourite episode of all time in Sex and the City. Really? Yeah, I think it is because, look, it appeals to me personally because that character folds in three of my biggest fantasies. Having a Jewish boyfriend. (laughs) Having a boyfriend who is a successful writer and a published writer, even though I know in reality I would fucking hate that. It's still a fantasy yes, of mine. You know, that moment of her like sitting and reading his book in bed. Like it, I, it is like, yeah. you know, a weird fancy I have. And talking to another writer about, you know, the shared work or whatever. And then the third thing that you've touched on is marrying into a big, liberal, intellectual, urban, sort of faded bohemian Mm. loud chatty busy family um because it's so different to the to the household i grew up in and i'm so thankful like you know those families you hang out with where like the mum smoking weed with the teenage daughter and i love mm-hmm. being a bystander to it and i'm very seduced by it and i always want to hang out i'm so drawn to those families but i am so glad that's not the household or the family yeah. that i grew yeah. up with so yeah those three things really really pique my interest i think as you said, like that whole that whole family, every member of that family is so real. Like the brownstone they live in, the fact that the mum is called Wallace, Wallace's sort of chunky ethnic jewellery, her the hair, yes. the high cheekbones, the the kind of subservient, bookish, bespectacled father, the fact that there's always this kind of languid 1930s jazz playing off a gramophone, the fact that every time you're there, they're always eating the same thing, which looks like it's a Zabar's standing order of like smoked salmon and bagels. It's just like every detail of that family. The the fact that he's quite bratty. The sister who's a lesbian, the fact he's quite bratty with his mother. It's like... It, they must be based on a real... F- I'm convinced that the writer who wrote that episode must have known a sort of liberal, artsy, intelligentsia family that they entirely based those characters on. Oh, they're so good. They're so good. And it's interesting for you as well that, like, I, I do love this episode that it's your favourite because you, you know, you d- did grow up in North London. You have been in and out of, like, Jewish households your whole life. And so yeah. that's probably a landscape that you're way more familiar with than I ever would have been. But it's just so instantly charming. And I do think it is interesting 
in the wide to look at the show's relationship with Judaism in general because mm. it's the only culture that's not like sort of waspy or white American mm. culture you know that it represents a lot and like very carefully you know it's it, like mm. it really has a a real sense for accuracy and authenticity when it comes to Jewishness particularly because that's so much part of like New York culture yeah and interestingly I think that in Sex and the City and Us when they talk about um when they tell the story of how Candice Bushnell's columns were optioned they said that they had her and Darren Starr had to do quite a lot of work to widen those um columns out to a more commercial um audience particularly as well when you're talking about America you're not talking about you're talking about such an enormous place I read a quote recently that said America isn't so much a country as more of a world (laughs) like it must be so difficult like think about how many how many how many Americas are in America? So they had to work really hard to expand, like keep the specificity of Manhattan in the DNA of the show, but expand it. So I think the words they used, Darren Starr used, is like we had to make it relevant to more than just five hundred people because I think mm-hmm. Candice Bushnell's columns were very much like high society Cult. New York, to, yeah. yeah. And I think that you really get that sense of development in this series with the episode where Charlotte sleeps with a man who's uncircumcised and yes all the girls are like what I've never slept with an uncircumcised man and Samantha says oh well I've slept with plenty I've slept with five and as you're watching it you're like this is so Manhattan that this is a thing and then you hear Carrie I think be the voice of the audience and she says well, you know, actually, like she says, she yeah. just drops in. 75% like, of the population yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't circumcised. Yeah. It's so, I remember um, the first time I watched that episode as like a teenager and being so baffled because, at, you know, from where I was growing up, I I had basically never heard of the idea of people being circumcised outside of strictly religious mm. ideologies. Do you know what I mean? So the idea that like, Samantha, who's had sex with everybody, has had sex with five mm. uncircumcised people. Mm. It was mental to me. I remember my mind just blowing wide open. But I think it's um, good that they make a point in that episode of like, there's they make they shine a light on how myopic it is. Yeah, they do. I know you are sweating to talk about the alcoholic, just like he's sweating out his last drink. I just love that storyline. I love that man. <laughs> I fucking love him. I would. I just know I would have got tangled up with that alcoholic. Well, recovering alcoholic. <laughs> I know I would. You know I would. I know you would. I'm just glad that you said it. <laughs> but I didn't have to. He's so hot. That actor is so fit. He's so yeah. gorgeous. And he's so charming and they have such good chemistry. And the story is he's in month 11 of being in the 12-step program. And he says, I'm not really meant to date um, until I get to a year, but fuck it. I'm going to have a date with you, Carrie. And then he is nervous about sleeping with her because he's never had sex sober before. And then they have this like really 
electrifying sex, which is denoted with like, I think they play a Donna Summer song rather than any actual footage of sex, because as we know, Sarah Jessica Parker could only sort of lie in missionary with her bra on as part of a contract. (laughs) For some reason. So they had to really amp it up with like a really uh, breathy Donna Donna Summer, uh, Donna Summer's soundtrack. And um, the story is he gets completely addicted to her. And she mm. apparently doesn't like it. First of all, I just think, <laughs> I think Carrie would have fucking loved a man being addicted to having sex with her. And I think it's interesting oh. as well because Carrie has the propensity to become addicted to a human. So I think it's interesting in that like when she's kind of coming clean out yes. of that addiction to Big, yes. she sees someone become addicted to her and she finds it quite, quite frightening. Yeah, she finds it totally unattractive. And uh, it is, it's like Susan Sharon. It's like this um, reflection of her own behaviour back at her and she finds it totally mortifying, as we all do. When I watch those final two episodes where she finds out that Big is with Natasha and that he is engaged to Natasha. Oh yeah, we've hardly talked about Natasha, yeah. I think we're just so done with talking about Big, aren't we? <laughs> we've got a pretty big free yeah. um, section in series yeah. three. Um I think re-watching it now, I think Carrie handles it remarkably well. Yeah. And again, I wonder if you feel the lack of a female writer. I'd, I'd be interested to see if Jenny Bix wrote those two episodes mm. or whether it was Darren and Michael, because from what, from my experience and from what I've seen my friends go through, if you are in love with someone and they are in love with you, And they say to you specifically, there is one reason we cannot be together. This is the only thing that stops us. I don't commit. I don't want a relationship. Mm -hmm. Like it's a political stance or like it's a kind of Mm -hmm. a religious belief. Mm -hmm. This is something that I am an atheist towards. This is something I don't support. It's nothing to do with you. It's the institution I can't be a part of. I love you, but this is the thing that stops us. If after you break up with that person for that one reason, within a year, they Mm. are in a relationship, it makes you go fucking insane. It's a type of insanity that I almost can't describe. It makes you like doubt who you are, who they are, what you were. It makes you go into like existential crisis. It makes you go into, it's like, it's so huge. It is. And I think she handles it very fucking well. The beats of it are, she's in the Hamptons and she's, it's so good because she has her little protege that she takes on, who's this sort of like 24 year old who's never had sex and follows her around like a little puppy. And then she has this thing of, um, then she runs into Big and Natasha and then the last line of that episode is her vomiting after she says to Miranda, Big's back from Paris. He's met a girl. She's 26. And then she just voms, which is good. Um, and then she sort of has a sort of like her attempt at being his fake friend. And then she says, oh, we'll only talk <laughs> to each other about relationships if it's serious. And he says, it is serious. We're getting married. And you're, and she, do, yeah, you're right. She actually doesn't spin out as much as we think she should. But I think because I don't think the writers had the strength 
<laughs> to, Maybe that's it. To go through it again. She does, you're right, she does handle it remarkably well. You literally open on the next episode after she finds out that they're engaged. And I think that they'd only been apart, they'd been together for two years and they'd only been apart for a few months. Yeah. And then he's engaged. And she says, in the beginning of the of the episode after she finds out, she says, I'm over it. They're happy, we're over, it's fine. And actually at the end of the episode where he tells her that he's engaged, he rings and leaves an answer phone message and says, I didn't mean to hurt you. And she picks up and says, I know you didn't. I'm sorry I reacted that way. I just like, I don't know, just with like older eyes, I look back on that. I'm just like, I can't. It's the most like remarkably unneurotic that Carrie is ever. I would be so furious. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're totally right. And the thing is, that paired with the fact that we've seen her freak out over nothing (laughs) so many (laughs) times before and then over this huge thing. And I do kind of, maybe it is just the writers literally didn't have the strength anymore to write yet another Carrie tweaking out sort of scene. But maybe it is that thing of like, and it goes back to this thing of addict behavior of like, when you're fearing the worst will happen it's so hideous and you're so on this sort of like emotional high wire all the time and you're so frantic. But when the worst has happened and there's nothing left to lose, there's an oddly calming effect, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. It's like, have you you ever been like, I've I've had this with like freelance gigs before where they felt like really tenuous and like maybe the editor doesn't really get back to me very much or they're very shirty with me and and I'm always afraid I'm going to lose this one revenue stream and if I do lose this revenue stream it's going to really fuck up my day and my week and my year and then I then inevitably as with all journalism jobs it does fall through and I always feel this eerily calm afterwards like yeah yeah good yeah and I do think that's very real and it's very human yeah particularly as well when like Manhattan is a small island and it's particularly the Manhattan that they live in, those two people live in, is small and they do, you know, they are moving in the same circles. Those first episodes of series two, you know, particularly when she has, you know, when she has the single and fabulous, that awful cover where she looks like shit. Oh, we haven't even talked about single and fabulous. I love it so much. But I think it's so imbued, like, again, I, now when I watch that, initially I was like, oh, how embarrassing, it's an unflattering picture. Mm. Now when I watch that, what I, I feel so panicked for her when it comes yeah. out because what you, like, when you break up with someone and you know that you're, like, in the same circles, you basically know that anything you do potentially is going to get back to them mm. or anything public that is that that you put out there. Bearing in mind, this is pre-social media as well, so it's not like she can... <laughs> put up photos of her having a great time on Instagram for Big to See. So the only evidence that he has of where she is in her life and how she's doing is like like her in newspapers on page six mm-hmm. or the front when she's on the front of New York magazine. And you do feel this panic in Carrie all the time in that first section of series two of like, where is he? What does he think of me? What is he doing? When am I going to see him? So I think there is a bit of relief in that final, in that finale of like, as you said, the worst has happened. Mm. Not only is he get, not only is he with someone, he's with someone so fast. He's getting married. She's so and young, she's beautiful. Yeah, she's a beautiful, tall, twenty-seven-year-old. <laughs> There's nothing left to worry about because yeah. it's all happened. Yeah, it's, it's so freeing. I was going to ask you, like, that single, the single and fabulous thing, like, 
as someone who has like done a lot of like media stuff, some of which you've felt good about, some of which you've not felt good about. Mm. I'm so curious as to how that whole thing hits you. I don't know whether you have anything more to say about it. I just, I just really. (laughs) No, it's terrible. It's terrible now. Anytime something bad happens, every time, anytime I have, you know, shit talk about me on Twitter, every time I have a bad (laughs) picture published, every time I have like, you know, an awful video put up on, of me doing some like home video during lockdown waving at someone with no makeup on saying hi to my German readers I'm so excited about you know all that stuff yeah um not now I can deal with like just looking like shit or looking like an idiot online because I've been doing it for so long but now I'm much more aware of like all the exes that I don't want to see it are going to see it particularly the ones I don't talk to anymore because that's the only that's the only like evidence that they have of where I am in my life or what I'm doing. It's like a whole other layer of panic. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. Oh. Do you have that though? Because yeah. you like, you have to do a lot of like public facing stuff. Do you ever think when you're, are you ever thinking of exes? Like when you put stuff out there, do you ever think like, oh, they're going to see that or I wonder what they thought of that? Do you know what? I, I think about this a lot actually because, um, as I said, I've been with Steve Brady for seven years and, um, <laughs> and um, you know, before that, um, I had a three year relationship with someone who I'm like, like pretty amicable with and like we're not friends or anything, but I would certainly have a drink with any day. Um, and then before that, it was just a series of like boys back in Ireland of like various, you know lengths and suitabilities and there at that point that's a decade ago and so it so doesn't matter that it like they don't occur to me that much and yeah you know it it doesn't really matter what actually occurs to me more I think when you're a woman who's been through a lot of monogamous relationships or two in my case um your exes are your (laughs) ex-bosses right they is that is that mental to say do you think no no I don't think it is I think I put so much I think it it might be something to do with sort of being an immigrant who sort of I came over here and I had to sort of invent who I was and the idea that there are these people and I'm thinking like three or four of them who hold different versions of me in their heads. That was yeah. me trying to yeah. invent Caroline the writer at various points in mm. the last decade. The fact that they have these mm. humiliating memories of me that are so vulnerable and I was so stupid that they might as well have seen me naked. They, <laughs> they trouble me much more. And I think that might be insane. <laughs> no. No, I don't think it is. I don't think it is at all. I think that will resonate with a lot of people. <laughs> I hope so. Please write in if if that is the case. No, that that is of, of the of the trying out. Yeah, the of the trying out the adult self. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think as well because I came here alone and I was very young, and I there was no one to hold me to account over how I should be behaving. I wasn't like you. Know, I didn't move to London with like this like bevy of housemates who'd kind of always sort of known me and would check my little phases and little you know Barbra Streisand moments I think I was just like waltzing in every day (laughs) with a new Barbra Streisand moment 
and it really cripples me <laughs> to think of what that must play like in other people's memories. <laughs> if you have those memories and you're listening, please write in to share them. <laughs> wrap up there because it's going to expose okay let's wrap up so man of who's your dream boy of the season right i think for difference sake because i do see the attractiveness of all of um you know the the alcoholic and obviously john bon jovi very hot but i think some overrated men include the new yankee who is very hot and very sweet he is he is cute very very cute and I really like, and this is like, when I texted you about this, you were like, ugh, that's so you. Um, the guy <laughs> in the Freak Show episode who Carrie meets at the fountain and he's reading a book and he looks like a kind of a chubby Paul Rudd. And Yeah, I knew you'd love him. I find him so gorgeous. And he's just, they have a really nice time together. And what's really interesting about it is um, she's the one who fucks it up because she's acting like a freak. She kind of goes through all of his things because when when he leaves the apartment and he after they have sex and he's going to come back in an hour or something and she goes through all of his 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 things trying to find out what's so wrong with him and then he comes back and she's trying to pry open like a box of baseball cards to see what he's hiding and he's a bit like you you're you're a fucking freak and she's like I am a freak and that's it but it's like oh it's so like he's he's quite bland there's nothing hugely going on he's just very cute and very soft and I just love a big cute soft man <laughs> He is a big, cute, soft man. Yeah. You're right. Okay. I'll give you that. Now yours. So Justin Theroux, Patrick Casey, and then my third contender is Mr. Cocky. The guy with the, th- the huge dick that Samantha goes out with. Yeah, and it's obviously, uh, that's not the reason why he's my dream okay. boy. Because I actually find women who go on about loving big cocks to be very unchic, actually, and quite smutty. Um, <laughs> and actually quite unimaginative. I would say. I agree. Um, but the reason, the reason I think he is so hot, I think he is the finest specimen of man that has ever featured on Sex in the City. No, I would agree with that. He is like a, like a real, a, like Adonis, you know? Yeah, he's got, he's like a Greek statue. He's the best body I've ever seen on Sex in the City. He's so, like, I just have, I'm going to say this, like, this is a really, um, unusual stance to take but I have this absolute weakness for like just a big beautiful dumb beefcake wow yeah what can I say I'm pretty subversive (laughs) pretty amazing pretty Um, amazing have you heard of an app called Instagram (laughs) are you just like Going on, like, watching Love Island and just sincerely masturbating to it. But there, it's a certain type of, like, it's like, what is it? It's like a kind of, you know, all those photos of, like, Sean Connery when he was a bodybuilder. It's like a, it's like a 1950s mm. Hulk man. And that's what Mr. Cocky yeah. is. And the, the, the kind of man where, like, you almost see them in like 60s Technicolor when you look at them, the kind of slightly yes. orangey shininess of them, because that's yes. the kind of thing you associate with that sort of masculinity. Totally. Yeah, it's old fashioned masculinity, exactly. Um, yeah. And I Googled him last night and he, I'm desperate to go onto his 
Instagram page. I can't because my Instagram parole officer uh, only lets me in every 10 days at the moment because wow. <laughs> I'm on a deadline. So I only get to go on Instagram for 15 minutes every two weeks. But from what I could see of his Instagram page, I think he might now be either an enthusiastic owner of chihuahuas or maybe even a breeder of chihuahuas. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I, I might. I just saw a lot of pictures of chihuahuas, but I might have... I might have jumped the gun there. So anyway, I think my number one would probably have to be Justin Theroux. And I got to say, for that family, I would have gone to sex therapy with him. Really? To sort out his premature ejaculation problem. Yeah. Yeah, because the thing is, I feel like that's... A, I know nothing about that problem at all, but I feel like there's a pill you could be on for that, Right. Just give it you a know. give it a try. Like give it a shot, give Carrie. You love the family. The he's got a great house. He's really funny. He's sexy. He's a successful novelist. Let men be men. Let men. <laughs> Let men be men. Come all of your clothes. What's your outfit of the season? I have two candidates. The first is that blue dress that I've already mentioned from the beginning because I just think she looks so beautiful in it um, and the second is from that S&M episode she wears a slightly mental outfit but crop it's top. also perfect of the crop top the big black silk tutu and the top hat I find so sexy it's gorgeous I love it I would, I would wear that yeah you'd look great in that Thanks. oh can we find that for you um, on eBay you should definitely wear that outfit <laughs> great waste I don't think I'd be quite into that much stomach but like the whole silhouette I would mm. love I think it's gorgeous what about you mine's really simple mine's the moment that she leaves Justin Theroux's I love that we're not even bothering to find out the character's name <laughs> <laughs> um I love when she's when she leaves Justin Theroux's family home and um she's wearing um this perfect it's either black or chocolate brown really tight jersey high necked sleeveless bodycon dress and a pair of aviators yes I think oh, it yeah. is the best her body looks in any outfit it's so perfect it's so of the time it's so 90s it's just as we discussed with the naked dress I just love Sarah Jessica Parker in like a tiny 90s slip dress I think she looks so yeah. hot I feel like I feel like I feel like a man when I'm looking at her. Like I feel like I just want to get her pregnant when I look at her body. She it's just so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It's so beautiful. And Patricia Field just just start just just dressed her body so well, I think. Yeah. Totally. And and another one that I loved was the episode where they go to denial. Uh Carrie's wearing this tiny mini dress. That's it. Basically, looks like an oil slick that's been painted onto her body. Yeah, it's like a kind of a olive green almost. Oh, so good. She's just so sexy. Good clothes this season. Good clothes, and also a remarkable amount of wraps and shawls. Yeah, in the early parts. That's of the season. my dissertation title for this season. I think is the persistence of Carrie Bradshaw's wraps and shawls. But again, it's it's capturing Good. the time. It's capturing the 90s because that was the time of the Pashmina. What's your Carrie Clanger of the season? That episode where she calls him drunk with Stan... I think she's with Stanford. Oh, God. And it's after he said he's moving to Paris. It's awful. 
And what's terrible as well, it's like it's one of those things where, and you hate to see it, where she has every leg to stand on and she blows both of them off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's it's so horrible like, to watch. She absolutely yeah. She has right of way here where it's like, yeah, like if you're going out with someone for like two years, you really should factor them into your decision to move to fucking Paris for seven months. Like that's a no brainer. Um and then she's just Ugh, she just takes it to a terrible place. And I believe the monologue, and I won't look the whole thing up, it uh, peaks at, I am a woman, a woman. <laughs> and then she sort of like sloshes her drink all over herself. It's like, oh no, we've all been there. Yeah. Mine is is her brushing away Big's hair outside the plaza, outside his engagement party. Oh. And she makes a little joke with herself and she references a line from The Way We Were that she's been talking about in the cafe with the girls. And she says, your girl is lovely, Hubble. And he says, I don't get it. And she says, and you never did. And she walks off. (laughs) And I remember thinking it was so smart when I was younger. And I'm now just like, leave that poor man alone. (laughs) Leave the poor man and his simple wife alone. <laughs> this simple girl. <laughs> oh, that is such a clanger. That it's might horrible. be an even bigger clanger. Yeah. Because she doesn't even have the good sense to regret it the way she regrets the drunken outrage. She literally flips her hair, as you said, in slow motion. <laughs> she does not regret a word. <laughs> she thinks she nailed it. And she just leaves this baffled, this baffled man on a street corner. And actually, like the energy that he has in that scene, he kind of spells it out to her as the whole reason why they didn't make it, which is just like, you baffle me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He says something like, "Yeah, you're." It was always very hard. It's like, yeah, it was. It looked exhausting for you, (laughs) you poor man. (laughs) Um. Okay. To finish us out. I think we, we, we've we said that this is the podcast that talks about every season of Sex and City for the great American novel it truly is. I want you to deliver me what this great American novel is about. This great American novel, I think, is about loneliness versus aloneness. And I think it's particularly Miranda, Samantha and Carrie working out what solitude is and the dignity of solitude and the terror and pain of solitude and the nobility of solitude. And I think you feel that anxiety throughout the whole series. Yes. And that sort of sifting between the enjoyment of it and the acceptance of it and versus the terror of it. Like there's quite a lot of just ex- existentialism in there. Like yeah. they go to that designer's um, funeral and they all have this really existential reaction, right? Like, mm. The, there's Miranda and the whole the just me line which I've had so many female friends quote back to me the yeah. the whole just me thing of buying an apartment alone or renting alone you've got Carrie who decides to call big at the end of this because she's she's suddenly afraid of dying alone and so it's constantly juggling these two things of yeah. like what is being alone versus being lonely yeah a great American novel <laughs> one of the greats one of the great Violet next to Updike Sex in the City Series 2 This has been Sentimental in the City My name is Karen O'Donoghue Your name is Dolly Alderton Would you like to plug anything or do you feel overexposed as it is? 
I think I feel, I think I've done enough talking. <laughs> Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com